Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 92. Psalm 92 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that together, though, let's, let's pray one more time for our Father's blessing. Our Father, we recognize that uh, apart from you, um, we cannot receive any good thing. We cannot uh, receive any good thing, especially from your word. We cannot uh, have ears to hear or eyes to see or hearts to receive what you have to say to us. And so we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would enable me uh, to speak truth, uh, that you would give us all ears to hear. Uh, that we would receive your word, and most of all, that we would see, receive the grace found in the gospel afresh this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon, They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, we have been uh, looking at the Psalms for a few months now. If you've been here, you know we've been not hitting every psalm in the book of Psalms, but we have been uh, trying to get a a feel for the book, trying to get a selection of the psalms to get a sense of the whole. And the psalms are a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but they go from the, the heights of joy one moment to the depths of seeming despair the next, and then back again. Much like the experience of our everyday lives, On the one hand, our our lives rise and fall with joys and sorrows. And yet, even when we are are riding steady, as it were, we're called to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes that happens all at once. Well, this morning, you'll be happy to know that today is a time to rejoice, a time to celebrate. And that's true, not just because we come to Psalm 92, which is a psalm of celebration, Uh, But it's also uh, true because it's the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. Uh, The Sabbath is always a time to celebrate. And that's uh, one of the things we're going to talk about this morning, the celebration uh, that is the Lord's day. Uh, If you turn to your outline in the back of the bulletin, you can see we really have we have one point with three sub points. 
And the point, the main point is the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a time to celebrate, to see God's work, to sing for joy, and to praise God's name. So first, the Sabbath is a time to celebrate. Uh, the heading to the psalm says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Uh, it's a unique heading in uh, the Psalter. In fact, this is the only psalm that has any reference to the Sabbath day, uh, which is interesting and causes us to ask the question, well, what kind of psalm does the Psalter specifically set aside as a Sabbath psalm? And the answer is, it's a hymn of thanksgiving and praise. It's a psalm of celebration. Sabbath, as you may know, is a designation in the Old Testament for the seventh day of the week. Uh, Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word for rest. And the Sabbath day, from the beginning, was a day of rest. And yet it was never merely a day of rest. Uh, in the beginning, God declared all creation very good on the sixth day. Then on day seven, uh, he rested, and that became a day, not just of rest, but a day of celebration, rejoicing in the completed work of the Father. The Sabbath was a day to celebrate God's work. The Sabbath in Israel was a day of assembly. Uh, Moses calls it a holy convocation in Leviticus 23. Isaiah says it is to be a delight in Isaiah 58. Uh, now, I don't, I don't mean to be crass, but... You know, what do you call it when you take a break from work and gather with other people to celebrate something? Well, today we call it a party. Uh, the Old Testament Sabbath was a party. It was a celebration. Now, it's true that, that the Sabbath was a holy day, uh, but I'm not always so sure that we understand what holiness is. And, and especially maybe as 21st century Protestants, we tend not to know what to do with holy days. But even as we come to the New Testament and the day changes from a celebration of the completion of the first creation to the celebration of the beginning of the new creation and the resurrection of Jesus, the day is still holy. It's the Lord's day, which means it is a day that uniquely belongs to the Lord, which by definition means that this day is holy, set apart to the Lord. And so the Sabbath is a holy party a sacred celebration. The Sabbath is a time to celebrate, which means it is a time first to see God's work. Sabbath is a time to celebrate, but not just anything. It's a time to celebrate the work of God. We're going to start actually in the middle of the psalm in verses 5 through 11 and work our way out. Uh, verse 5, the psalmist begins to reflect on God's work, and he says, How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts! Are very deep. The works of the Lord are great, his thoughts are deep. By deep, he means uh, God's thoughts, God's plans are something we cannot fathom, uh, something we, we can't comprehend, we can't understand. God's plans are incomprehensible. And of course, isn't that true? Uh, can you understand all that God is doing in life? Can you even understand all that God is doing in your life? The answer, of course, is no, right? God's thoughts are deep. His plans are, are beyond us. We can never get to the bottom of what God is thinking. Now, this is true for all of us, but the psalmist says it's even worse for some of us. Uh, verse 6 says this, The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. 
Now, the word stupid uh, doesn't simply mean someone with limited intelligence. God is not saying that only smart people know him. If this were true, salvation would no longer be by grace, but it would be by smarts. Besides, Paul says that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, because God cannot be known through the wisdom of this world. No, heaven is for stupid people too. I know my first thought was, whew. So what does the psalmist mean here? Well, uh, Psalm 73, verse 22, uses the same word, but translates it a little bit different. Psalm 73, we, we read, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. It's actually the word brutish there. The stupid person of Psalm 92 is the brutish man of Psalm 73. Brutish like a beast. The senseless brute does not understand what God is doing. He does not understand God's work because he's entirely focused on this present life, this present moment. Psalm 49 uh, picks up on those themes. It says, the brutish man trusts in his wealth and boasts in his riches. He names cities after himself. He has a foolish confidence. He counts himself blessed and seeks the praise of men. And ultimately, Psalm 49 says of this brute, in verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. To be brutish and beast-like then from these psalms, Psalm 73 and Psalm 49, is really twofold. It's to keep your eyes on the things of this age, the powers and praise of this world, right? To never lift your eyes above the, the grass in your mouth, as it were. And it's to perish, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And so then, what does our psalm mean, Psalm 92, when, when the psalmist says, the senseless brute cannot know, the foolish cannot understand this? What he's saying is, these folks, they may be the most intelligent people on the planet, but if their thoughts are only on the planet, they are a little different from beasts. He may factor the distance of the stars, and she may discover cures to deadly diseases, but if they do not lift their eyes to heaven, they cannot understand the works of God. What does that mean? What, what are the works of God? Uh, certainly, it, it means, first, God's work in creation. In his making all things of nothing by the word of his power and all very good. The fact that everything that we see came from the mind and hand of God if you study the largest star or the smallest beetle and don't know that God made them, your knowledge is at best incomplete. You don't understand what is most true about all things. Of course, there's also God's work of providence, uh, that everything falls out according to his good and wise plan. If you don't know this, uh, as you look at the rise and fall of civilizations or the ups and downs of your own life, the universe just becomes this cosmic gamble which may be exhilarating for some, but will be terrifying for others, and ultimately lacks all real meaning. And yet most of all, God's works, the works of God, are his works of redemption. And this is where the psalmist goes, to God's judgment and his mercy. Look at verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. 
If you don't lift your eyes to God, the psalmist says, you, you may think that when the, when the wicked sprout and evildoers flourish, it must be pretty good to be the wicked. I mean, why not join them in their wicked ways? I mean, if cheaters get A's and those who take advantage of others get ahead, why bother living a moral life? The psalmist gives at least one answer here, which is they are doomed to destruction forever. Psalm 49, verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And do you ever envy the arrogant, the the superstars of our age, the the rock stars, the movie stars, the business tycoons? Do you you covet the, the powerful, the beautiful, the wealthy, the popular? Lift up your eyes to heaven and know this. Psalm 92, verse 7, Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Is he gaining that the riches and wealth of this world is not worth it if it means forfeiting your soul? And that is sobering. That that changes things. That that rewrites the playbook. That that alters the rules of the game. You know, when I was a kid, I, I uh, I had a Garfield poster. Everybody should have a Garfield poster, right? I had a Garfield poster, and it said, uh, said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. The psalmist says that's not true. Those are the words of a senseless brute who cannot see beyond the pains and pleasures of this age, who cannot understand the works of God. But God is on high forever, verse 8. His enemies, behold, his enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But, verse 10, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Psalmist is not among the senseless brutes, right? He sees God at work. And so he doesn't live in wickedness only to be destroyed. Oh, he's seen his share of troubles, to be sure. I mean, we've read the Psalms. The psalmists know that life is full of troubles. But verse 10 says, God has exalted his horn like that of the wild ox. Now, horns were a symbol of power and status, uh, like we might ascribe to a great buck or a bull. In fact, the, the King James Version, because of a mistranslation in the Septuagint, Translate this uh, not as wild ox, but as unicorn. Which, if nothing else, at least fits the picture of power and status. See, God has honored the psalmist. Whatever his trials, God has brought him through. God has not only honored and exalted him, but anointed him, poured over him fresh oil, says verse 10. Uh, Now, anointing was a, a common means of refreshing But it was also symbolic for being set apart for a task by God. It doesn't necessarily matter which it means here. Uh, The point is uh, the downfall of of the wicked is contrasted with the exaltation and anointing of God's people. And so here we see the, the height of God's works, right? Here we see God's justice and his mercy, his bringing justice upon the wicked and showing mercy to his people humbling the proud, and showing grace to the humble. Now, I'm bound to ask at this point, of course, where do we see this more clearly than anywhere else? Uh, Where do we see God's work of creation? Where do we see God's works of providence? Where do we see God's work of redemption clearly and unquestionably proclaimed? 
And the answer, of course, is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Here we see God's works of providence uh, in ordering the life of Jesus to the point of the cross, in overseeing all people who were a part of that event. Acts 2.23 says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, even as he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan was to redeem lost men and women through the death of Jesus. Well, God didn't just get lucky that people happened to put Jesus to death, right? He ordered it. He arranged it. He oversaw it, that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world. And here in the death of Jesus, we see God's hatred of sin, that God would go to such lengths to punish sin, even if it meant punishing his own son in our place. We see God's justice. Here in the cross of Jesus, though, we also see God's redeeming work. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And yet we also see God's redeeming work in the resurrection. Uh, God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. He did not let his Holy One be doomed to destruction like the wicked. But the Father exalted the Son, raising Jesus from the dead, taking Jesus up into heaven, and seating him at his right hand to rule over all. And there Jesus has received all glory and all honor and all power at the Father's right hand. And the Father also poured over him fresh oil, as it were. Uh, to say that Jesus was refreshed in the resurrection may be a bit of an understatement, uh, but we can say that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and received the fullness of the Spirit and has now been anointed by the Father to reign as king forever and ever. Jesus can say better than anyone, verse 10, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. Jesus is the exalted and anointed king of Israel. And it is in this act of resurrection, of course, that new creation has begun. God raising Jesus from the dead inaugurated a new creation. Jesus has died to this present age, but in rising from the dead, a new age began, the age of resurrection, the age of the Spirit. So we see God's work of providence and redemption in the death of Jesus, and God's work of redemption and new creation in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see God's work? Do you understand what God has done in the cross and resurrection? You might wonder, well, is God still at work? And the answer is, of course he is. Uh, God is still at work in providence. All things work according to his will for God's glory and his people's joy. Not necessarily our immediate joy, but our ultimate joy. God is still at work in redemption. Uh, Jesus poured out his spirit on his people. He is at work through them to draw all people to himself. Through the spirit, the new creation has come right here and right now. We, the church, are the presence of the new creation because God's Spirit dwells in us. Again, I ask, do, do you see this? Uh, not do you see this with the eyes in your head, but do you see this with the eyes of faith? Do you realize that there is more to life than, than what your eyes can see, that God is at work? And if you don't, ask Jesus to open your blind eyes. Ask the Father to open your deaf ears. Ask the Spirit to open your mind and your heart that you would know and understand the works of God. Now you might wonder, well, why? Uh, why, why should I? What difference does it make? Well, for one thing, because that is the source of true joy. 
which brings us to the next point. The Sabbath is a time to celebrate, which means it's a time to see God's work and to sing for joy. Seeing God's work is one thing, but being moved by it is another. The psalm begins in verses 1 through 4. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Verse 4 here is really kind of a hinge in this psalm. You have made me glad by your work. See, there are God's works in creation and providence and redemption. And then there is the effect that work has on us. You have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. I want you to notice that there, that, that, that there is this emotional response to God's works. The psalmist is not unmoved. Uh, he, he's not like us, right? When we, when we read the newspaper and we hear either of some wonderful thing that happened or of some tragedy, and we say, oh, that's nice, and then we move on with our day. Our hearts are disengaged. The psalmist is engaged as he hears, as he sees, as he tastes and touches the works of God. He is moved to be glad. Too often today, of course, the work of God does not make us glad. And there are probably lots of reasons for that. Let me just mention two of them. Uh, The first reason the work of God often does not make us glad is we're so busy, so busy consuming and enjoying and indulging and rejoicing and mourning and working and playing, that we just don't stop to seriously consider where it all came from and who oversees all things and what God has done for us. It's not necessarily bad things that distract us, right? But, but we go to school, we get haircuts, we watch TV, we attend weddings, we sweep the floor, we mow the lawn, we shop online, and we never stop to think, to consider, to meditate on the works of God. We are brutish and ignorant like beasts toward God. Don't be a senseless brute. Lift your eyes to heaven and marvel at his work. Let them move you to be glad and sing in what our God has done. Of course, this, the second reason the work of God doesn't make us glad is kind of just a subset of the first. We, we hear of God's work. We hear of his works uh, in uh, forgiving our sins, in giving us new life, and we're still unmoved. And we're unmoved because we're not really sure we have sins to forgive. And, and if so, they're not that bad. See, we fail to see the the depth of our sin, the direness of our situation. And so the good news of the gospel just doesn't seem that good. You know, a cure for the common cold would be nice, but a cure for cancer, right? That would be good news because cancer itself is so bad. It's when we see the weight of our sin and the seriousness of its consequences, then we begin to see the wonder of mercy and forgiveness, It's when death stares us in our faces that resurrection becomes so marvelous. And so you can begin to see why an emotional response is the right response to God's work. Because the work of God is for our good. It is we who have the cancer of sin in our hearts and God who holds out the cure of forgiveness and new life in Jesus. And so we're moved to joy. And that joy expresses itself in singing. Now, there are different ways of expressing joy, of course, but most of them get loud. 
You know, some of the quietest, quietest people, even at church, are shouting yes when their team scores the winning touchdown in a football game. Well, singing is really just kind of organized shouting. Uh, I know that may sound either weird or maybe even offensive to some of you musicians and singers in the room. I don't mean to belittle singing. What I mean is this, right? That the book of Psalms often parallels shouts of joy and songs of praise. Psalm 47 actually puts them together. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Singing is meant to be the exuberant overflow of a joyful heart where you can't keep it in any longer. And so you sing and shout about what our God has done. So we give thanks. We sing praises and declare God's steadfast love. And we do that to music. The music of the lute and the harp. The music of the lyre. The music of the, the violin and the piano and the guitar and the banjo and whatever other instruments we can come up with. Psalm 98 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. See, the Psalms exhort us to use whatever you can to make a joyful noise to our God. We are commanded in the Psalms to make a joyful noise with instruments, trumpets, horns, cymbals, and harps. How impoverished will our singing and shouting be if we refuse to worship God as he has instructed? You see, the Sabbath is a time to celebrate. A time to celebrate, which means it's a time to see God's work and to sing and shout for joy. Finally, it's a time to praise God's name. Uh, we have one last point, and it may seem like the same point I just made, but it's not. To say that the Sabbath is a time to celebrate by singing for joy doesn't go far enough. We sing joyfully for lots of reasons. We have lots of happy songs in our day. Music is always playing in the background. And so we need to be clear that the, the celebration the psalmist is encouraging here is a celebration of God and his work. It's where we started, but we need to come back to this point, right? This, the psalm begins, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, thanksgiving is at the heart of all true piety, of all true relationship to our Father. To give thanks is to recognize the giftedness of life, that everything we are, everything we have, didn't come from us. It came from Him. To give thanks is to recognize our undeserved dependence. We give thanks because God has given us life and breath and health and food and clothing and family and friends and the church and Twizzlers and dark chocolate, and craft beer, and Marvel movies. Your list may be a little different from mine, but, but you get the point. And most of all, God has given us his son, and the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Spirit, and the hope of the resurrection. In thanksgiving, we realize and proclaim that we are not God, that all that we have does not come from our hand, but from his. It is good to give thanks it is right and it is pleasant that we would recognize the source of all blessing, goodness, and joy and that we would find our delight in him. Verses 12 through 15 uh, pick up on this and they really tell us that this is the very goal of God's work. Verse 12 begins like this. Uh, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. You see, these verses tell us that the reason God causes his people to flourish, to grow, to experience good is so that they might declare that he is right, that God is good and righteous and true. See, God in his amazing mercy has wrapped up his glory with our joy. He's shown us his works. He has done good to his children that we might experience joy and sing his praises. And of course, this this flourishing is often in the midst of difficulty, trial, and trouble. God doesn't promise us a a trouble-free existence. Uh, he, He promises to be with us in the midst of life, whatever might come. Notice where it is that they flourish. The psalmist talks about trees, uh, the, the, the palm tree, the cedar in Lebanon, these great majestic trees, strong, powerful, fruitful. But where are they? They're in the house of the Lord, in the courts of our God. And see, the, the garden imagery of Genesis 1 and the tree imagery of Psalm 1 has been brought together with the imagery of the temple. What we have here is really ultimately a picture of the church, a picture of the people of God. Those who meditate on the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, who are filled with the Spirit who is in them like springs of living water and so have become the temple of the living God because God dwells within them. It is the temple garden people of God who flourish because God's Spirit is within us. And though we might experience times of drought in life, times when the glory of the temple seems to have departed, times when the fruit of the trees seems a bit sour, we know that God will never leave us or forsake us. And we will still bear fruit in old age. And really even forever and ever when we rise as God's holy temple, his well-tended garden, that we might declare his praise for all eternity. You see, God wants us to delight to delight in that which is supremely delightful in himself. And this is the reason for God's works, that we might be glad and so give thanks and sing sing praise and declare his love and faithfulness day after day. And so we have the, the Sabbath, the Lord's day, a day set apart by God, set apart for a holy party, a sacred celebration, which means it's a time to see God's work, to sing for joy and to praise his name and to do that both today and every day and for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your works. We thank you most of all for the work that you have done in your son Jesus. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection. We thank you that you seated him at your right hand where he reigns. We thank you for giving him your spirit whom he poured out on us, the church. We thank you that he is still at work drawing men and women to yourself, that we might know you, that we might know blessing in you, that we might have joy in you, and that we might praise you forever and ever. Father, may it be so more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.